0: You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Well, over the... Uh, we've, we've had a, a break for a few weeks in here, but the, the prior two Wednesday night lessons, the, f- the first one of those was on, uh, on salvation. I, I taught on, I told you then I was going to teach on at least three subjects. I was going to teach on salvation, deliverance, and then repentance. So the, the, the first one of those, I spoke on salvation, how we know that we know that we know that we know that we're saved, scripturally, and so, you, you know, that, that's two times ago. The last time I spoke on deliverance, and I went through the deliverance model and talked largely about that. So tonight, I'm going to talk about repentance. And this is one of those topics that has been poorly taught and severely undertaught. I don't think we fully grasp the significance of misunderstanding this word. I will, uh, I've asked Steve uh, to go up here. We're in this, I know it's small, and, but I, I just kind of wanted to have proof. This one over here is probably a little clearer to read. But this is the Old Testament word for repent. Now, again, I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Steve, can you scroll? There you go. It's, it might say it for you if you click on that. Okay, it's N A C H A M whatever, however you say that. Probably Nakham, if I was guessing. But notice in the definition down here, it says to be sorry, to console oneself, repent, regret, comfort, be comforted. Right under that, breaks it down to be sorry, be moved to pity, have compassion, to be sorry, to comfort oneself, over and over, to be sorry. And when we recognize that the way I was taught anyway, that to repent meant to turn. And I'm struggling a little bit. Uh, Steve, would you scroll up, I guess, so I can see the bottom of that. Uh, I don't really ever find that that definition even in the Old Testament about this word to turn. But, I mean, this was the very common teaching. I'm doing something wrong, and I repent, and now I'm doing something right. Well, in the Old Testament, that made a whole lot more sense because they were still under the law. They could actually be recognized that they were doing something wrong, be shown that they were doing something wrong. They would repent and turn from that wrongdoing according to what the expectation of the law would be, and they would, and they would repent to turn. So that has been that that got fixed in our minds, and again has been the common teaching. But I, I will assure you that this is not an adequate perspective for what was taught within the New Testament, because the New Testament word we find it immediately. The first time we find the Greek word instead of the Hebrew word, repent, we find a different definition. So Steve, would you go to the uh, to the New Testament word, repent? This is the word that is found in Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to look at that verse in just a second. The, the word, again, I, I probably couldn't say it, but it's mataneo, and you look at the, you look at the uh, definition down here, it's very simple. To change one's mind for better, heartily heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins, to change one's mind for the better. So what's, why is this so significant? Because this tells me now where in the Old Testament, to regret or to be sorry had much more to do with an action that I took, a behavior that I had demonstrated. But when it says here to change your mind, what's missing? It does not say to change your mind about what? Do what? And? And? Actions and thoughts and previous concepts and everything. You can change your mind about everything. So when we go to Matthew chapter 3, and this is the first time in the New Testament that this new word, this Greek word is used in the the beginning of chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judah and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's what's John the Baptist telling these Pharisees, these these religious leaders? It's time for you to change your mind. And let's read just a little bit further. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight." And the same John had his Brain of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his, his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him to Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourself, listen, hear this, and think not to say within yourself. What is that? What's he telling them? You're, you're, You're going to go to a place of stubbornness in your mind. You're going to go to something that you've already got fixed. He says, don't do this and think not to say within yourself, we have Abraham to our father for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So again, he's he's, he's challenging them immediately. These religious leaders, it's time to change your mind. Why is this such a big deal? Well, we have an extreme case in this day and time of New Testament Pharisees. The majority of the church is made up of New Testament Pharisees. What did the Pharisees know? Paul said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. What what was he trying to describe about himself? I know the law. I I, I know these rules. I know the God that has been taught me. I can quote it. I can say it. I can represent it. I know God at a concept level. Anybody who knows God at a concept level but does not know him by encounter is a Pharisee. What changed it for Paul? What changed him from being a Pharisee to something else? What happened to him? He had an encounter. On the road to Damascus, it was the encounter that moved him away from the concepts of God the law, that, had, that the things he could actually learn about God, he had to meet him personally. That changed him. And so today, the church is full of New Testament Pharisees unwilling to do what? Change their mind. Absolutely. And, and what's the warning? Still, change your mind. About what? Well, we, 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 we'll go down this list. But it's a real handy place where we could actually, with not this being the actual most important, but in ministry, one of the most important things that we can do is to live open so that when God teaches us something that comes against something we once knew, he doesn't find stubbornness, he finds willingness to consider. He finds openness, he finds the willingness to receive truth. And I, I can tell you, I can only share one testimony factually and it's my own. But he keeps me in a state of repentance because he's teaching me all the time. For me to tell you Sunday morning that you have to reckon me dead, just as Joshua had when in Joshua 1, when God says, Moses, my servant, is dead, when that which Joshua had respected and loved and trusted was dead, then Joshua could step into the fullness of who God had established him to be. And you and I are very unintentionally have allowed things, obstacles to stand in the way between us and that which God has destined and designed us to be. And from Romans 6, when we went there, we have to reckon those things as it says there about sin. The word reckon is to add up. Anyway, you add this up, anything that stands as an obstacle between you and that which God is calling you to be has to be considered and reckoned as dead, including those people who blessed you, including those teachers and those mentors, because you will never take that step. It's interesting what Jesus did because Jesus tells them, I'm going away. My presence here is not the important part. I've got got something I've got to do. I've got a purpose that has to be fulfilled. But I'm going away so so that that which is in me can be in you. Because I don't need one person filled with the Spirit. I need millions of people filled with the Spirit. I need billions of people filled with the Spirit. So Jesus had to be willing. I have to to live in, in a readiness for me to come to you and say, you need to reckon me as your pastor as dead so that you will not stand behind me in ministry. You will stand here or here wherever God has established you, but you don't line up behind me. Waiting for for something to happen because God has already established a purpose, a design in you that has no reason to wait to be discovered. Whatever the obstacle it is. For for Joshua, it was Moses. For me to step into that required repentance. It required me to be willing to change my mind about something. For uh, this, this list is huge for me. You know to just this past week we we consider this teaching. And it's like, well, he just taught me this, but so often the teaching that he shares with us is coming against something that we once are we once knew. It's been a huge transformation for me to move away from activity to identity. But with all that I have understood about that over the years, for the Holy Spirit to bring the this relevance to what I've shared with y'all now a couple of times, the way Satan creates permanence in hurt, when as a child, you might have taken some blow, some hurt that happened or a lot of little hurt. The, the way he creates permanence in that hurt is to assign an identity to it. That makes sense? Why would he do it? Because he knows that my identity, the one God gave me, creates permanence in me. Identity does that. Because, you know, somebody may look at me and I'm I'm a pastor, sometimes a counselor, sometimes a contractor, sometimes a carpenter, sometimes a painter, you know, all those things. But what's the constant? I'm Randy. That identity connects all these things. Well, when I understand myself from God's point of view, I recognize that wisdom is the connecting point. Wisdom connects, per, creates permanence and connectivity to my life. I may be in a thousand places doing a thousand things over the course of a lifetime, but the constant is the identity. Satan knows if he can change that identity, he can create another constant that makes the hurt last a lifetime. That's new to me. That's newly revealed stuff to me. I could say no, no to that because that's not what I've known before, but if I live willing to repent, I can always lay down that which I knew so that he can teach me beyond where I was. You take away repentance, that won't happen. We will not be willing, live willing to change our mind. He's talking to the Pharisees saying, you have thought for a long time, and I know where you're going to go with this. You're going to say, we've had Abraham. And John the Baptist says, don't say that. That will not do it here. Because what's coming is going to so radically need for you to change your mind so that you no longer anchor yourself to, well, we have Abraham. We have the oracles of God. this This is how... Well, we know that for the Jews, they never gave it up. They, they were not willing to repent. They wouldn't change their mind. We can read page after page after page this teaching on repentance. I looked them up on my phone just before, before we started, and you can just see the sequence of this word repent. Change your mind, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind. Change your mind. Yeah, before, when, when they were under the law, doesn't it make sense that they would regret what they were doing so that they would do something else? That makes sense because they were under the law. There was a large focus on doing back there, needed to be a focus on doing. So it's no great surprise that the Hebrew word would focus on what they were doing. But it's also with this radical new thought that's happening within the New Testament God is saying, I need you on a daily basis, regularly and routinely, to be willing to change your mind. I have so much to show you. Let let these two points connect. Again, I I know that this uh, this, this is different, and not everybody will agree, but I know that when Jesus asked his disciples, whom do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Immediately, they began to express opinions. Well, some say this, and some say this, and some say this, and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, in this very unique moment, says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to that is amazingly telling. Because once again, for the majority of our lives, we have been told that when, when Jesus says, you know, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but upon this rock I will build my church. That, that we have said that Jesus was saying, Upon me, I am, upon me I will build my church. It's, it's so easy to teach, so easy to believe. It's just not what Jesus said. Now, it doesn't reduce Jesus' importance in the building of the church. He's the cornerstone, he's identified. Clearly, as this. But when Jesus is saying this, what caught his attention? We don't even have to be confused. Blessed. Why are you blessed, Peter? Why is there there uniqueness here? Blessed art thou. Because he got it by revelation. Well, what does revelation require if we're going to receive it? It requires repentance. He can reveal all day long, but if he reveals something that is that is adding to or taking us beyond what we once knew. What's he going to find for, when he gives the revelation? Is he going to find the tenderness of our heart so that we can receive something that he wants to teach us? Or is he going to find the dogma, the stubbornness to say, No, I already understand this. Don't teach me anything else. The, the things that we're teaching on Wednesday night for over these multiple weeks, these 52-plus topics that we've taught over all these weeks, every one of those requires some element of changing your mind, some more profoundly than others. But we will absolutely be stuck and, and we'll wonder within churches why there's no breakthrough, why there's no revelation, why there's no transforming power, why there's no dynamic that is supernatural, that will not happen without this reality of repentance. It won't happen. That's why I can say absolutely when we teach it in the narrowness of I'm doing something wrong, I need to repent and do something right. It will never draw us into the truth of, the, of just how incrementally large it is to think in the concepts of change your mind. Because then every topic gets put on the table. Every topic, every scripture becomes a new source of information, a place of revelation that can speak to me. As Again, I run down these pretty often in my office, just probably a couple of times already this week for people I'm meeting with the first time, just as an illustration. It was a shock to me. Steve, uh, in that search place, go back to the opening of this, or no, there's a place right up there in that top little square, kind of uh there's a little there's a little white square up at the top just type in the word convict up there you see what I'm talking about it's got the words. it's got move your mouse up a little further right there well right there that in that little box yeah type in the word convict huh there are no concordance results for convict in the King James Version. Think that required any repentance? Brandy, I'm thinking about what you're saying here. And the Lord's given me another word. uh This repentance and this obedience has to go hand in hand. Absolutely. To you can't you can't be obedient without it. Even to, to the point of, of once holding a position, because I was taught the position, that at the end of Acts, God stopped speaking. Now that really affects obedience when I, when I believe he stopped talking. So when you read in the scripture, faith comes by hearing, this gerund that says present tense continuing. My faith is built on the ability that I can hear today and continue to hear and that by every word, Rama, that proceeds from the mouth of God, every piece of that that allows me to be obedient requires repentance, or there will be no obedience. What this connects to is extreme. When I'm sitting at my desk and I just say out loud, the Lord convicted me of something, and the Holy Spirit just comes very quick and says, that wasn't me. And that's when I turned around to my to my my computer, and I put in the word convict, and it's like, hmm, that's going to be a real short study. i was going to look it up all the scriptures where the word convict was. But think about this. Again, each piece of this, and the more open we find ourselves, the faster he can teach us. Why will he not, logically, reasonably, why won't he use the word convict? Now, in some versions of the Bible, it's in there about six times. But what we find is that it's never connected to the believer. It's always connected to the lost. Now, this will make sense. Why will he not use the word convict with us? I'm sorry? Yeah, because there has to be a law broken before there can be a conviction. Hmm. And we now know we're not under any law. He nailed them all to the cross, Colossians 2, 14. He blotted out, he erased every written ordinance that was against us. And he nailed them to the cross. Why could he do it? Because he gave us the spirit of God to live in me that would always now exceed the law. So he will not use the law against me and say, I'm going to convict you against something that I nailed to the cross. You see, every piece of that teaching, everything that we gain, requires that I be willing to lay something down, not because Randy said it. I had a young man in my office this mor- uh, uh, on Wednesday, sorry, Monday morning, and I told him, I said, "I have to make a request of you first, foremost." I said, "Because I know there's a lot of people talking to you. I said, "I don't want you to believe a single thing I say. Nothing." I said, but if the Holy Spirit tells you it's true, believe it wholeheartedly. I don't want you to repent because I say something. I don't want to repent because I hear somebody else say something. But I want to live open so that the Holy Spirit can constantly be the one who's bringing me truth to bring me into new revelation, to bring me into new, in, into a new seasons of my life, to bring me into new adventures. I want to live in a place of repentance so that I can live openly so that the Holy Spirit can tell me something and not find the resistance. If he says it and I know it's him and it's not hard to tell, it truly is not hard to tell when the Holy Spirit is the teacher because it creates this wow, first of all, and then suddenly it, it's like this Cog begins to turn when I hear this new revelation. So, oh, that explains that. That connects to that. That connects to that. And all of a sudden the truth just begins to just turn. It's like, why not convict? Well, because we're not under the law anymore. The Holy Spirit now lives in me. The writer of the law now indwells me. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 tells us very very clearly. The Holy Spirit now lives in me. So repentance requires us to to live open before the Holy Spirit. How much did Paul have to change his mind? Think about that. What was necessary for Paul to become the man that he was, that wrote more of the Bible than anyone else? What did it take? Just imagine how much stuff he had to let go of that at one time he was willing to kill people for. He was willing to arrest them. He was willing to stand and hold the coats of the others as they were stoning Stephen to death based on a set of beliefs. Until the encounter, and says, immediately he began to preach and teach that Jesus was the Son of God. What happened? What did he do? He repented. He changed his mind. But how much he had to let go. And then he actually says, I counted it all as dung, a harsh word, an ugly word we wouldn't say. And that's what he says, all of this stuff that I once knew, I'm willing to lay down because I I, I want Christ. That begins to tell us of the intensity of the repentance that the Holy Spirit is looking for in us. One of these days, I'm going to play this don't have time tonight, I don't think. But there's a video. You might want to look it up. Uh, I wish I could think of the exact title. But it's an explanation of why Smith Wigglesworth had the ministry that he had. I mean, I can't even quite imagine... But he, he, he wasn't searching for, his prayer life, he wasn't searching for power. He knew if he had presence, he would have power. And said so he would go into a funeral home and pull bodies out of a casket and throw them up against the wall and command them to come back to life. You see, you don't get there until there's a characteristic or quality about life. In that video, there's a story of this woman being brought up to him. And he asked the question, who here is the sickest? And this, it's the here, here, this lady. They bring her up. She's in a wheelchair. And he says, stand her up. So they get her out of that wheelchair and and... and And he he says, let her go, collapses on the floor. He said, pick her up, gets her on her feet, let her go, boom, hits the floor. So what do you think the congregation, what do you think the audience is doing? I'm sure they're calling him some names by now. I mean, he has got him angry. Third time, stand her up. Let her go. And she stands there. I think she had cancer. Because he says, you could see the cancer laying on the floor. This, though, is the explanation of what kind of life he lived to make that life possible. See, we don't live that life. Most of us have got a perception of what the Christian life is that will never change until he finds this willingness to repent. This willingness to let him shape in me what he sees, what he wants, which, which requires that I lay a lot of stuff down. It hasn't been easy. I will, I will, it's much easier now than it used to be. I used to fuss at him. It was, it was an interesting day. I'll tell you, it was an interesting day when I was out just north of my shop cutting brick, working on a project, remodeling project we had going on at the house, I'm cutting brick And I'd asked the Lord a few days earlier about some stuff at church, and one of the things He says was you got to call the deacons back in service. So we had a process. Matter of fact, Mr. Hensley and I had already talked about this. He had already gone to Danny Green and told him, "Danny, we're going through this process again. I I just want you to know that you will not be selected. Divorced, you will not be selected." We try to do that just out of consideration, so to try to minimize the hurt feelings. So I'm standing there, I can go, to, I can go down to the office and get the piece of paper if you ever want to see it, and uh, we had a process which required nominations and all this kind of stuff. So it like, it felt kind of strange when God began to give me the names of who the new deacons were supposed to be. And I got down to about number six on the list and it was Danny Green. uh Uh-oh. I'm sorry, God, you don't know what I know. (laughs) Strange conversation between me and God in that moment. He answered me quickly. He didn't leave me hanging. He said, Randy, you worked hard to follow the rules. I want you to follow my voice. I'm sure when you went back to Danny, you might have been a bit surprised. Mhm. I was. You See, that requires repentance. Now I want to mention two other things before, before we go, because this is really we need that we need to conceptually understand, change your mind. When, when, I'm, when I'm working with somebody in my office and repentance is the question, and it always is. I always teach repentance no matter what's going on. There's two critical areas where I want people primarily to repent. The first one I put up there is I always draw a box at the top of the paper and I just write the words Y-O-U. you. So whoever I'm talking to, I don't put their name, I just put you. I want you to repent and I want the topic to be yourself. I want you to change your mind about you. So over here on one side of the piece of paper, I draw this arrow. Y'all can see me doing this because you've watched me use the flip charts many times. But I start up here and I draw this arrow up to that box. that says you. And on that line with the arrow pointing up, I write the word history or past. Because most of us, not all of us, at some place in our life have been affected so that my view of me has been shaped by that past. That has been the root from which most of our self-image has come. Most of our self-awareness, our concepts have come, is out of that history. Even so far back, as we were talking about with Mr. Hensley earlier, where did his name come from? Well, it came from an ancestry back there. That name has been passed so they could find it back to the Civil War. So we're affected by what's done from generations that we didn't even know <coughs> that, is, that have caused us to have an awareness of ourselves, whether it be good or bad. But the question is the same as it always is. What's the likelihood that that history can give you an accurate or an exact uh, assessment of yourself? What's the likelihood that it could be correct? Yeah, Judy's right, Zero. It's zero. It has no chance of giving you an accurate view of yourself. So we're not asking here that you simply change your mind and rethink according to that same line, changing points along that line, because the result is that history is still going to be shaping you. My brother and I are two very different guys. We, We grew up in the same house. I could rethink that past, but whether I turn out like me or turn out like him, it's still that past that shaped us. So what's what's the answer here? To change your mind has, and Jay taught us this several years ago, a a, a bit different concept. (coughs) He wants us not to simply rethink. He wants us to exchange the root that has no ability to create accuracy for a root that has nothing... No capability except to give us accuracy. Find a new route. Well, thank goodness from the Word of God, we know what the new root is. John 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus was about to go away, says, I'm leaving, but I'm sending someone. I'm sending the Holy Ghost. And one of those things He will do is what? leads you into all truth. So what's the root? The Holy Spirit. Because he can, he will, out of who he is, give you an accurate view of you. So we say around here pretty often, there should be nothing held in your head about you that doesn't originate in him. I should never allow myself to think something of me that doesn't originate in his opinion of me. Because that opinion will be accurate. That perspective will be truthful. He can tell me about me. He can tell me remarkable things about me. He will tell me honest things about me, truthful things about me. He will tell me what the Father's heart is toward me. But he's the only one who can do it. So in repentance, it's about not only, it's about changing the root, not trying to improve the old one, but to forget the old one and step into the new one. So what's the one topic that I would say beyond that goes in the box up here where I wrote the word you, where instead of somebody's name, I wrote the word you. What's the ultimate name that goes in that box? God. To change your mind about him. Change your mind about him. You know, two weeks ago, you know, from that point in the shack on, that, on that, that third meeting, again, I'm amazed at how that's going, but on that third one, the thing that's happening when he and Papa are making the bread, that whole scene is a set up to make Mackenzie aware that you don't know who I am. You don't know who I am. And later, in another scene that we're coming up to pretty quickly, matter of fact, I think it's the next one, Papa will say to Mackenzie, Mackenzie, your basic problem is you don't believe I'm good. You see, most people don't have a very clear picture of God. And God's saying, I want you to repent. I want you to change your mind about me because there will be no great healing. There will be no great... Uh, transformation, there'll be no great supernatural moves of God if you don't change your mind about me, if you don't see me correctly, if you don't know that I love you, if you don't know that I'm for you, if you don't know that my power hasn't changed, I'm still willing. I just don't find many Smith Wigglesworths in the world anymore that are willing to do what Smith Wigglesworth would do. Because, I mean, when he's ministering and somebody would come up on the stage, he would just punch him. Hit him with his fist. He said, what are you doing? He says, you can't fight the devil with your mouth. Sometimes you've got to take a swing. He was a plumber. Until the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you have to just change your mind. Often to let go of much about what we were taught about who God is. And I, I, I know it's a movie, but I stopped the movie in the middle of a, of a scene the other night when, when Jesus and Mackenzie are coming back up to the house and Papa and the Holy Spirit are dancing and laughter's coming out of the house. And I stopped and I said, if I'm honest, is that God, that view of God that laughs and loves and is passionate, is, is, he, is that easier to love or than the stoic one that we've always been taught about. And again, I know this isn't an exact representation, but it's it's what God has shown me about him as my papa, as my father, as my daddy over the last several years and the change of who I know that he is and how he loves us. I love being able to tell someone sitting in my office with their heart broken, that you have a Father who knows. You have a Father, those emotions that you're feeling are are emotions that He's feeling. Wouldn't it seem strange that that He can create an emotion in me that He doesn't feel when I was created in His image? That I'm capable of an emotion that He's not capable of? I think it's interesting. We, dr- we drastically need to change our minds about who He is. Not to rethink Him, but to let go of that root from our history that has told us who God is. S- to step across this page and let the Holy Spirit begin to teach me. I don't know, I don't know many... I don't know any denominational history really much except this one, and I don't know this, I don't know Baptists very well. But I do know that in the early 60s, because of some problems that occurred within this denomination, the pendulum swung heavily toward extremely conservative. Now, you don't have to back up, but right before that, in in the 50s, in this church, I mean, I, I have a cousin that was in this church, and I did a funeral for, he, for him. And when his sister passed away, my cousin passed away, I did a funeral for them in Leveland. And the men, I hadn't seen him in years, but he knew I was the pastor here. And he said, he do said, you remember the time that the Holy Spirit, I mean, he was just quick in the, in the late 50s. Robert, those days, those were Holy Spirit-powered, filled days. But the swing of, of, of the move toward the Holy Spirit caused this extreme reaction. And the Holy Spirit was written out. And our view of God got drastically changed in those days, not because of something God did, but something that humanity did. Who can change that? The Holy Spirit has to be the root because if I keep trusting the history, you're not going to move me. What was the Baptist song? Like a tree planted by the water. I will not be moved. There's some pretty good stuff in that thought. There's some pretty hard stuff in that thought. You're not going to move me. We need to be moved. Repentance about who God is is the only way that I will, again, see myself correctly. I will not know me until I know him. I will not know myself fully as a son until I know him fully as a father. I will not know myself fully as a saint until I know him fully as a savior. I'll keep hinting at the thought, maybe I'm still a sinner. Nope. If I know him as savior, I'll know the complete work that he accomplished, and I'm a saint today, not a sinner. He died to take that title away from me. I don't confess that anymore repentance is a big deal. Much more dynamic. You know, I've shared this with you all before and many of you have witnessed this, but we start Bible studies at time, times and there might be 50 there and we'll, we'll usually end with 20 because somewhere in, in there, the 30 heard something they weren't willing to let go of. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to go back in here anymore because this guy's teaching stuff that I don't believe. We get it a lot. Heartbreaking at times. But the reality is that, that, you know, they're very stuck or very set. Even "stuck" stuck's not the right word, they're very set in what they believe. And, and they're not going to have it changed. They're not even going to have it questioned. Because they're still under the mentality that if, I, if I'm willing to let my, my mind be changed, then I become vulnerable. Anybody can swing me anywhere. Well, I hope so because the Holy Spirit's going to keep revealing truth. He said it. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. What's the rock? It's revelation. Because that's what, when Jesus said it, Peter, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you but my Father. He saw in Peter this Petros, this little rock, this little moment of revelation. He says, but upon that little rock, I will build the Petros. I'll build it on something so absolutely solid And again, we shouldn't be surprised when Paul in one of these great apostolic prayers in Ephesians says, I pray that God will give you the spirit of what? Wisdom and revelation. What's it going to take for us to know this greatness of God toward us? It's going to take revelation. Go back into Matthew when he says that. He says, and if you know this, you'll hold the keys to the kingdom. You'll be able to lock and unlock, loose and unloose. Bind and unbind. Why? Because he'll give me revelation to say, this is bound and this is loosed. This, can, this, this is held and this is set free. I don't know that without revelation. You see, any of those topics, again, one more and I'll quit. Back, back up there in that little white place, Steve put the words for him. okay how many entries does it say there are 22 oh, yeah, oh no that, that's not going to do it because that's, that's picking up the word for and him not, not the phrase uh, I don't know if you do that with quotes but the answer is there's about 14 times that that phrase is in there And again, not a single one of those tells us to do something for him. I tell you what, the pulpit is full of that phrase. What are you doing for him? Are you giving? Are you going? Are you testifying? Are you teaching? Are you getting involved? Because what does for him perpetuate? Activity. And if I can get you to be active, then I can measure how well you're doing as a Christian. The phrase doesn't exist in a single place, not even one. The closest that it comes to telling us to do something for him is is when it says we are ambassadors for Christ. That's the closest it comes to give us an instruction to do something for him. Yet the phrase in him between 150 and 200 times. You will rarely hear that phrase from the pulpit because that doesn't perpetuate activity. That perpetuates identity. Who am I in him? What does that even mean? In him I live. In him I breathe. In him I have my being. In him there is therefore no more condemnation. Over and over we find in him, in him, in him. In him. For him is a handy phrase to perpetuate activity, which makes churches look successful. In him establishes relationship. To get there requires repentance. To let go of a lot. <coughs> but I don't know how. When I, when I come across these things in the scripture, like this phrase, for him, that doesn't exist I, don't, I, I can't keep saying it. I don't have, it's like it won't come out of my mouth anymore. I can't say what are you doing for him. I can't even have that thought. Because what do we call it when we teach something that's not in the word? It's not truth. <laughs> What's the word? You have thought, what, what do we typically call that? Teaching that which is not true. It's Heresy. So we have we have a responsibility to let him teach us, and his teaching requires repentance. Paul is again the perfect example. How much did he have to let go of? How much did he think he once knew? That he says, "Now when I recalculate, I reckon it. When I re-add it up, that whole all that is dung to me. That I'm win Christ." He had to let go of extreme. an extreme perspective that had caused him to arrest and kill those who resisted to a place where he could teach and preach that Jesus was the Son of God. Repentance in us is so much the key, as Shorty said, to revelation, to obedience, to the supernatural, or we will be stuck. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.